The word empathy seems to show up somewhere in almost every conversation I have with leaders. On this episode, getting better at empathy with emotional intelligence expert Daniel Goleman. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 391. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. When I think about that phrase, leaders aren't born, they're made, I think about one of the wonderful, wonderful models that I've had the privilege to learn about over the years, as many of you have, the model of emotional intelligence and how much we all can learn and can grow on these competencies that are so important in leadership. And who better to be here teaching us about emotional intelligence and the topic of empathy, which comes up in virtually every conversation we have on the show, than Daniel Goleman. Daniel is an internationally known psychologist who lectures frequently to professional groups, business audiences, and on college campuses. His 1995 book, which many of you are familiar with, called Emotional Intelligence, was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half and has more than 5 million copies in print worldwide in 40 different languages. The Harvard Business Review has called emotional intelligence a revolutionary, paradigm-shattering idea. He was also a science reporter for the New York Times, was twice nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and received the American Psychological Association's Lifetime Achievement Award for his media writing. Daniel is the author and co-author of many best-selling books, including most recently, The Building Blocks of Emotional Intelligence, 12 Leadership Primers on the Key Competencies of Emotional Intelligence, and he's also the founder of the Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification. Daniel, I'm so glad to welcome you back to the show. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. I am honored to have you back. Uh, When you were on last year, we talked a bit about emotional intelligence, some of the key competencies, and you were very kind to invite our audience to send in questions for when you returned. And so we're going to dive into some questions from the listening community. Before we do that, though, I can't help but ask you some about empathy, because as I mentioned in the introduction, empathy comes up in pretty much every conversation around leadership. And I was watching an interview that Oprah did with you on her Super Soul Sunday show, and you told her that you were speaking to a room of two to 300 CEOs a while back, and that you just happened to ask how many of them were valedictorians in their class. What happened when you made that (laughs) invitation for them to respond? Well, I was um, surprised to see like maybe two people raised their hand out of 300 or so. Wow. And, And that just tests the assumption that IQ is the key to leadership success. It is the key to getting into the right job in the first place, but it it's no guarantee of how well you do, you know, whether you'll be a star in that position, whether you'll be a team leader or promoted to the highest level. That's where emotional intelligence comes in. There are two sets of emotional intelligence competencies. And and before we dive deep on empathy, for those who may not be familiar with the model, what's the distinction between those two different sets? I see emotional intelligence as having four parts and the first is uh, the first set has to do with 
how well we're aware of ourselves and how well we can manage ourselves. So it's leading ourselves. And then the second is empathy and relationship management, how well we can lead others. And interestingly, we find that self-awareness, which is pretty invisible, uh, is actually essential for the relationship competencies, which are the most obvious leadership abilities, you know, inspiring people, motivating them, and so on. But if you're not very tuned in to yourself, turns out you're not going to be that good at tuning into other people. That's where we get into empathy. Yeah. And and last time we did talk about self-awareness. And empathy is one of those words that I think most leaders, I mean, certainly everyone has heard, and I think most leaders acknowledge as a really important part of leadership, at least part of the folks who are part of our listening community. But I'm not sure... I know I wasn't clear before I did, read in some of your recent writing on just what empathy is. And I was wondering if you could define it for us. Sure. Empathy essentially is the ability to sense what's going on in the other person without their telling you so, to be able to read their gestures, their tone of voice, you know, the nonverbals that are the path of communication for empathy. And there are three kinds. It's very important to realize that each of them is different. It's, it draws in a different part of the brain. There's cognitive empathy, which is how well you understand how the person thinks, how you can see their point of view, take their perspective. You know, you understand, technically speaking, the mental models that they carve the world in terms of, because this lets you know how to speak to them effectively, what terms they'll understand. So it makes your communication highly productive. The second kind is emotional empathy. And this draws on some recently discovered circuitry in the brain called the, the social circuitry, essentially, which turns out to create a back channel, brain to brain, no matter what else we're ostensibly doing. And that gives us an instant sense of what the other person is feeling, what's going on in them emotionally. And this lets us fine tune how we interact with them. It also puts us on the same page with them emotionally. So if you have cognitive and the empathic, the emotional empathy, you're going to be really able to have rapport with the person. But then there's a third kind of empathy that's not talked about much, but I think it's essential for high-performance leadership, and that's called empathic concern. And this draws on circuitry that we share with all mammals. It's the parental caretaking circuitry. You know, it expresses itself in one way as a parent's love for a child. But in leadership, it means you care about the people you're leading and they know that. They feel seen, heard, supported, guided. You know, you can set limits for them. That's part of guidance, what you would do for a kid. But you also can inspire them. You can motivate them. You can let them feel protected in a good way, not protected from every reality, but protected from things that, you know, a leader should take on rather than passing it on to everyone else. I was thinking about those three kinds of empathy, and particularly the last two you just mentioned, the emotional empathy and the empathic concern. And I found myself struggling a bit with the distinction of the last two, sure. of the, the emotional feeling and also the empathic concern. And the word that was coming up for me was action as a distinction between the two. There's a little more action in the empathic concern. 
am I oversimplifying or is there a better, is there a way that well, you think about that as far yeah, as emotional empathy simply means you're picking up the other person's emotions. It doesn't mean you care about them. In fact, uh, you can use cognitive empathy and emotional empathy very manipulatively in your own interest without caring about the impact on the other person. On the other hand, if you have empathic concern, that adds the caring. That means that you're going to act in that person's interest as well as your own. Oh, fascinating. So I might understand logically what's going on with another person, and I can then, the second one, sense their emotions. But if I don't have that real concern for them, I'm missing out on empathic concern, and I'm really missing out probably on what emotional intelligence is, right? Well, I think you're missing out on what it takes to be the kind of leader people want to be led by. You know, when I ask people all over the world, I ask business people, uh, tell me about the best boss you ever had, the worst boss you ever had. This dimension always comes up. You know, the bad boss didn't care about me, wasn't, you know, was aloof and so on. And the boss that I love, the boss everybody wanted to work for is the one who adds this dimension. I was talking with one of our Academy members recently, and he brought this really fascinating question to us around empathy. He said, I've noticed as I've started listening better that I can logically understand where people are coming from, and I feel like I want to help, but I don't feel the emotion. I don't feel like my heart is in it the way that I feel like some other people's hearts are in it. And I thought what a mature and self-aware thing for a person to say and come to that conclusion. And I was wondering, Daniel, when you hear something like that from someone who says, I, I feel like logically I know what's going on with someone, but I don't feel like my heart's in it. How do you encourage them to take that next step forward to get better at that? Well, actually, you know, when you say my heart is not in it, it sounds to me like that's not empathic, that they're not really fully having empathic concern. With empathic concern, your heart is in it. Emotional empathy simply means you know what the other person is feeling, not that your heart is into tuning into them, having rapport, caring about them, and so on. Yeah, I guess the question then is, because I, I think you've distilled that really well, of for someone who recognizes that maybe they don't tune into empathic concern, or that isn't, for whatever reason, where they tend to go when they're interacting with people, and they want to. They want to get better at that. Where can they start? Well, if they have kids, they could start there. <laughs> you know, the brain <laughs> doesn't distinguish between work and home. And you can start with anyone in your life that you care about and extend it out because it's the same feeling. It's the same attitude. It's the same mindset. But do you leave it at home? Do you have it just for certain people in your life? It's a pretty profound question to ask yourself. Uh, yeah. One of the things you say in the empathy booklet is to develop empathy, you must learn to open your heart to be able to recognize, feel, and to name a range of emotions. What have you found that's helpful for people in doing that with more consistency? Well, one of the things that helps recognize your own emotions and therefore other people's is mindfulness. Being able 
to take some time for yourself and just watch the flow of your own thoughts and your own feelings and give it a name. You know, I'm feeling anxious now. I'm feeling great now. I'm feeling nervous. I'm whatever it may be. Because it turns out that because of what's called neuroplasticity, the more you practice a skill, including an emotional skill like that, the more easily it comes to you in other situations too. And the ability to put a name to an emotion strengthens the circuitry for emotional recognition. And the more states you can recognize a name, then the more emotions you can recognize in other people. So part of that is doing it for ourselves. And I'm also hearing you say maybe part of that is also within organizations of perhaps bringing that language into there of being able to to name and to use that language around emotion so we recognize it. I think if that's appropriate to the organization, it's a good idea. You know, every organization actually has emotional norms. There are ranges of emotions that are explicit, that are recognized, that are applauded. There are emotions that are sometimes taboo in organizations. But that's a, a general or a company-wide norm. Then the question is, what's true for a leader and his team or her team? There, those norms can differ. And a, a leader who has a, a wider repertoire, and that's other people have a wider repertoire, is more open to a larger range of information from people that may turn out to be important for effectiveness. I was struck by something else you wrote in the recent work on empathy, that too much empathy in teams is a frequent problem. And you write, highly empathetic team leaders and team members often refrain from providing constructive feedback to team members who break norms or underperform on the team. Team leaders who are uncomfortable providing constructive feedback become poor role models and do not help their teams develop the norms that support providing one another with constructive feedback. This is one of the most common problems we see in teams, you're right. And uh, it's so interesting in some ways, like you're talking about empathy, but a a over-focus on this could also be a detriment. Well, you know, I think that that may arise from a common misunderstanding that empathy, being empathic means being nice. What you're describing really is a leader being too nice, not wanting to bring up unpleasant things, not wanting to surface you know, simmering tensions, not wanting to give negative feedback. And this is, you know, one of the common calls of management and leadership. But I think that's actually not a full understanding of, for example, empathic concern. Remember, I said guiding people is very important and setting limits is very important and giving them full feedback in the moment, but in a way where it's news to use, not a put down, not a like a dismissal. So I think delivering negative feedback is a fine art in leadership, and many people don't quite have it right. And I think about what you just said in the context of you've made the point of empathic concern is at at its core is so much about, for those of us who are parents, how we approach our relationship with our kids. We are very willing and excited, most parents at least, of being able to engage with them and celebrate with them. But we're also very willing to have the courage to step in and to give that constructive feedback and to discipline and to coach where appropriate and to show up fully. And I'm hearing you challenge us to do that in many venues too, of to think about how do I bring that kind of empathic concern to uh, to many of our relationships. Exactly. So I think you said it very well. If you can do all of those things as a leader, 
I think you're a pretty good leader. Yeah, yeah. We are, as a society, pretty mediocre at this in a lot of ways today. When I think about empathy and compassion and so many of the different venues that we all live and work in, this is not often the norm. And do you have a sense of what's causing us to not be present and, and, to, and to bring these values as much as perhaps we have in the past? You know, it's interesting. I think we're on the cusp of what I see as a values revolution coming. The value system that just emphasized, you know, get your quarterly targets, just uh, make sure that we're doing well kind of a hyper-competitive mindset, which had no larger sense of any greater purpose or any greater meaning, I think that that is going to be pushed aside by younger generations who are much more committed to a sense of meaning and purpose. And even you know, organizations, their lives and companies having a greater good in mind as a mission as well as doing well. And uh, I hear over and over that young people, millennials and younger today, put more stock in their own meaning and purpose and also want to join a company that has an explicit sense of meaning and purpose that resonates with them. And I think this is going to be a, a groundswell. Many companies now are grappling with, well, what is our purpose? What, what good are we? Where's our greater good? And it's in part because of this pressure from younger people. If you want to retain and attract the best and the brightest, you need to pay attention to this. Mm, indeed. When I think about meaning and purpose, one of the most incredible human beings alive right now is the Dalai Lama. And uh, you've been friends with the Dalai Lama for many decades. You have uh, written a book about his ideas. And I'm curious, what have you learned from him about empathy? <laughs> Well, you know, there's a spectrum that runs from self-absorption, I, me, mine, to noticing other people, to tuning into them. This is the empathy part and sensing what they need. And then if there's something they need that you can help them with, this is where empathic concern comes in, doing so. And the Dalai Lama is a real advocate for having this compassionate mindset toward people generally. And he says three things. He says, first of all, get your inner house in uh, order. Manage your own turbulent feelings. Be able to tune into other people. Adopt an attitude of actually caring about people, number two. And third, he says, act now in whatever way you can. We all are leaders. We all have some leverage, some sphere of influence. We all have a certain expertise or, or position and so on. He says, use it for the greater good in whatever way you can. I, uh, we called the book, which I did with him for his 80th birthday, it was, you know, it's about his vision for the world, uh, a force for good. And that force is the aggregate of everybody doing exactly what he said. Know yourself and take that first step to take action. And if you do that, then you are a force for good in the world. Yeah, if that step is, is in some way helping other people. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and well, that's a great transition for us actually to help out some other people. Uh, you were so gracious when you were on the show last year to invite our audience to send questions your way. And so uh, we have a few here that I think would be fun for us to tackle. The first one comes from Liz. Uh, Liz asked, how does one make the decision 
about which of the 12 areas to work on first. She's talking about the, the 12 different competencies of emotional intelligence. She says, I can think of three possibilities. Uh, I'm sure there's even more. Would Dan recommend working to strengthen what is already strong? address the weakest one first, or figure out which is most urgently needed in the workplace most immediately, or some other approach altogether. When you get this question, Dan, about where do I start, what do you tell folks? You know, this is very relevant. It comes up uh, in our coaching. We use an assessment. It's called the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. And people give you feedback on things like empathy and, you know, self-management and uh, do you inspire people? Do you manage your own emotions well? And you get a profile of how how you're doing in each of the 12. And then the next question is, now what? That's the question that we're being asked here. And I would say, first of all, do not try to change the thing you're worst at. That's going to be very a, a hard lift. Hmm. I think it's better to change the thing you care about the most and that you think will give you the biggest bang for the buck. That is, what will help you become better if you can improve it, but something in the mid-range. I wouldn't bother with your strengths. You're doing great. But look at the things in the middle, and then among those particular uh, competencies, which one draws you? Which one do you feel, yeah, if I could only speak up more in meetings, uh, you know, I, I, I would be doing better if I could just give that negative feedback, whatever it may be, which one is going to help you there in your own performance? That's where I'd start. Human nature for so many of us is to see the thing that has the lowest score and to tackle that first. What's the logic behind maybe not starting with the one that is the, the greater struggle for us? I think it's important that you have easy wins. That's not an easy win. That one thing that you just don't do that well is going to be a long haul. I think it would be more rewarding for you to start with something that you can improve and see a payoff from. One of our Academy members, Jeff, asked, uh, when Daniel comes back on the show, can you ask him how to assess emotional intelligence and hiring? That's a big question, Daniel. Uh, when people are, do come to you and they say, hey, I, sure. I really want to find a way to screen or to look yeah. for this, how do you suggest they approach it? Well, I, I, I don't think that you can give a self, people a self-test and use that. People want to look good. They'll try to game the test. Uh, you can't really use the interview situation. It's the same thing. People are presenting their best face. However, there's something you can do. If you're very familiar, for example, with the competencies and what they look like, you can ask two questions. Tell me about a time you did superbly at something and tell me about a time you did very, very poorly. And what did you learn? And it's the what did you learn you, you want to listen to? Are people able to assess themselves in this domain? Are they able to start learning on their own? These are good signs. But I actually think that the very best way to do this is to hire people on a probationary basis, put them in the mix and see what their chemistry is in whatever position it may be, and then decide, you know, maybe give them three months. That's where you really get the data that you can use the most. This conversation comes up in our, our academy as well. Of course, many organizations technically have a probationary period of 90 days, but in reality, unless you fall flat on your face, uh, you know, once you're hired, you're in in most organizations. And 
so part of what I'm hearing you say is, you know, maybe changing our mindset shift a bit in that well, first initial phase of yeah, employment. Yeah, I mean, a probationary period that is no, not really a probation is like a gut course in college. Everybody gets an A, but it, that does you no good. It, it doesn't help the person, doesn't give them feedback, and it doesn't help the organization at all. So I think perhaps companies need to be a little tougher about the fact that this actually is a probation. Ronald asked, what is Dan's view on vulnerability and leadership? And I'd be really interested to know whether he feels there is a tipping point on vulnerability and how you'd recommend finding the right balance. Well, I, I'm wondering what you mean by vulnerability. I can think of it as self-disclosure. I can think of it as letting people know your worries, your anxieties, your, what's troubling you. I can think of it as, and I think this might be the most productive sense of vulnerability, letting people know what it is you think you could get better at and that you're working on that and that you want them to help you. That's, that's being vulnerable, but it's being vulnerable in a growth mindset, in, a, in the sense that, you know, I'm not really that good at setting limits. I'm not really that good at making a probationary period really a probation. Uh, and I need your help. I'd appreciate your help. I think that is a very positive vulnerability. You know, in an emergency, people look to the leader to see if, how upset they should be. And if you're losing it, you're not really the leader people need at that moment. That's not a healthy vulnerability. If you come to work and that problem you're having in your relationship keeps you preoccupied and you know, you're know you sighing with anxiety, and so that's not healthy vulnerability because it makes people who look to you as a leader feel anxious too. Emotions are contagious. and They're most contagious from the leader outward. Because people naturally look to the most powerful person in the group and put most emphasis on what they say and do. And the, the social circuitry of the brain makes a leader's emotions highly, highly contagious. So it's best if you can come in with a positive outlook, feeling pretty good about what you're doing, feeling energetic, because that's what people will catch. So I'd say vulnerability in the sense of I too am learning to do better is very helpful. But vulnerability in the sense of, here's my personal weakness, I don't think that gets you very far. Mm, indeed. Matt asked, do leaders with high emotional intelligence endure self-doubt? Are they more inclined to this and experience overthinking more often? He says, I guess this is okay to an extent, but what are some of the tools to deal with this? When you think about self-doubt, Daniel, what comes up for you? Well, again, I think there's a healthy self-doubt and a not healthy self-doubt. And this has to do with the function of anxiety generally. Healthy anxiety or worry, helpful worry, means you address a problem and you think it through and you come up with some step you can take that will move things along. You may find that it doesn't work or that you need another step, but at least you have something to do unhealthy anxiety, and I would throw self-doubt in there, is where you simply ruminate about it, which means you never come up with anything you can do. You just worry about the same thing over and over and over. You have the same doubt over and over and over. And by the way, 
the term high emotional intelligence and low emotional intelligence, I don't really like those terms because remember, there are 12 different competencies and you can be high or not so good across the board. It's more like a profile. So the question is, where are your strengths? And if your strengths are in the emotional balance, sometimes called emotional self-control competence, what you're, you're not going to have much self-doubt. Uh, you may have mid-course corrections, but that's not a self-doubt. You may see ways in which what you're doing isn't working and change them. That's not self-doubt. Yeah, and I appreciate you mentioning the 12 competencies again, because high and low really oversimplifies this. And it goes back to that first question from Liz, what I heard you say too, of look at this holistically, look at where your strengths are, look at where your weaknesses are, and then maybe start in the middle and begin the journey of improvement. And if you start there and get some of those quick wins, then you are moving, you're taking action and you're getting better, which is the thing I love about your work and what we've learned about emotional intelligence is that we can absolutely get better at this, can't we? That's the good news. And you know, I've set up a after years of, of hesitating to do it, I've set up a coaching program to help people get better at this because the good news about emotional intelligence, unlike IQ, is it's learned and learnable. And you can get better at any point in life. So I think coaching, which is basically a tutorial, is the most effective way to do it. I just started an emotional intelligence coaching certification to help coaches get better in this domain. And we're also going to be starting a program to help executives who want to be coaches for the people they lead or who want to work on their own emotional intelligence to do just that. All of that is through Keystep Media. And if you go there, you'll see the array. Fabulous. I love that you're doing that for executives as well. So we're going to put links to that in the show notes for this week and the weekly leadership guide. The other resource I want to point everyone's attention to in our audience, and I've been diving in on these, is the 12 leadership primers that are part of the building blocks of emotional intelligence. One of them is on empathy. I'll be posting my notes along this with this episode with what I've highlighted from Daniel's work and his co-authors. And all of the competencies are addressed in the building blocks guide. So that's a great resource as well. We'll be linking to that in the show notes. Daniel, thank you so much for responding to questions from our community. And and I've got one final question for you. Sure. Last time when you were on the show, I asked you about what you changed your mind on. You talked about the mm. the changes in the mm-hmm. competency model over the years. And uh, one of the things, of course, in leadership is a reality we all run into is the reality of failure and how we learn from it. Mm. Mm. What is something you failed at and what did you take from that? Well, when I first wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, and I found that there was enormous interest in the business community in the topic and how it applied, uh, I thought, well, I'll start a consulting company. And so I found some people and and, uh, formed a partnership and I was all ready to to go. And then I realized, you know, I don't really work that well with these people. In fact, I'd rather not go ahead with it at all. And so I folded the company. I'd, I'd have to say I failed at starting a consultancy on this. And I waited quite a while until I found people that I really felt simpatico with. And now I've started again. And in fact, that's the Key Step Media program we were just talking about. Ah. So what I learned, I think, was to be better at gauging the people that I put my trust in. 
Daniel Goleman, author of Emotional Intelligence and the Building Blocks of Emotional Intelligence, and the founder of the Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification. Daniel, thank you so much for all the work and the inspiration and the roadmap you've provided for so many of us over the years. Thanks, Dave. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Daniel. Several related episodes in the library from today's conversation on empathy. I'd recommend also episode 301, How to Get the Ideal Team Player. Patrick Lencioni was my guest on that episode. We talked a little bit about hiring in this conversation with Daniel, and in episode 301, Patrick and I talked in detail about his hungry, humble, and smart model. A lot of Empathy came out in that conversation as far as how as leaders, and especially leaders who are hiring, which is most of us, at least in some capacity, how uh, empathy plays into that model as well, and how we think about others, and how we look through the lens that Lencioni has uh, been able to articulate to help many of us think about bringing and attracting talent into organizations. If that's of interest to you to dive in more on, episode 301 is a definite listen. Also helpful to you will be episode 344, Have Conversations That Matter with Celeste Headley. Celeste is a host for NPR here in the States and is really a master at teaching people how to have conversations that matter. That's the title of the episode. She talks a ton about empathy. I love some of the things she says about empathy and how she frames empathy, not only in her book, but in that conversation. She has a viral TED Talk that's been viewed millions of times on this topic. Episode 344 is a great listen if you want to supplement today's conversation with now thinking about how do you bring more empathy into your conversations. Also recommended is Daniel's prior appearance on the show, episode 353, Enhance Your Self-Awareness. That's the first competency in the emotional intelligence model that Daniel has uh, has crafted over the years and backed with so much research. And of course, so many in the leadership community have latched on and helped him spread this model over the years. Uh, self-awareness is the starting point, as we talked about in today's conversation. Episode 353 is the starting point for you if you want to dive in more on that. And then finally, I recommend episode 385, The Power of Vulnerability in Leadership. Academy member Jason Brooks was my guest on that episode. We talked a lot about vulnerability in that conversation. And uh, Jason's journey in stepping into leadership as a high school principal for the first time and how vulnerability showed up so much for him in that and how he leaned into that. It's a wonderful and beautiful story of his journey. And of course, so much empathy came out in that. Uh, So many of you have reached out saying how much you appreciated that conversation with Jason. Episode 385, it's one of the recent Saturday casts. Check that out as well. And as I mentioned in today's conversation, I have gone through in detail some of the primers, the building blocks of emotional intelligence that Daniel and his colleagues uh, have crafted and uh, put out in the world in the last year. One of them is on empathy. I have gone and highlighted all of the things that I think are some of the most critical lessons for us as leaders around empathy. And all of that is posted and available to you in this week's weekly leadership guide. In addition, it's also archived in the book notes portion of the free membership of the website. If you would like to get access to all of the highlights when I'm going through and reviewing, researching, or reading the books of the experts and the work that they've produced that have come on the show, uh, I often post those in the book notes section. It's one of the 
many things you get access to with the free membership. You also will get access to my 10-day audio course for free, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can register if I can talk. Why do I always have trouble talking on these at the end? I don't know. But you can register for free at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to the weekly guide, the book notes, my own personal library, all the member cast, and there's a ton more there in the free membership that you're able to explore. Go to coachingforleaders.com to get access to all of that. Thank you so much this week to Golf Nutton 8 K Westby, DRH1589, and Steve Root for the reviews you left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for giving your feedback. If you'd like to leave a rating or review, coachingforleaders.com slash apples where to go. And if you're an overcast user and this conversation was helpful, hit the star button on the app that'll recommend it to other overcast users. Thank you so much if you do either. Have a fabulous week and see you back next Monday. Take care.